0: You're listening to Allen, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Jeremiah Sutherland, of Victoria, British Columbia. Astounding Stories 20, August 1931. The Danger from the Deep by Ralph Milne Farley, Part 3. He started to protest, but she silenced him with a gesture and hurried on. I am not supposed to tell you this, but I want you to know that your examination today has resulted in a complete change in their plans for the expedition to the surface. They have consulted with the leaders of our masters, and they agree with them." She was plainly agitated. "'What is it, dear?' asked Abbott, with ominous foreboding. Milly continued, "'Early during your test, when you demonstrated that you couldn't do the very simplest mathematical problems in your head, they began to doubt your boastings that you are a scientist. But you were so ingenuous in your answers about conditions on the surface, that finally their faith in your honesty returned. If you are a scientist among men, as they now believe, then the average run of your people must be mere animals. This explains what puzzled them before, namely how the people of the earth tolerate poverty and unemployment and crime and disease and war. Well? And so a mere handful of our people, by purely peaceful means, could easily make themselves the rulers of the earth. Probably this would be all for the best, but somehow my feelings tell me that it is not, I know only too well what it is to be an inferior among intelligent beings, so will not your people be happier, left alone to their stupidity, just as I would be?" George Abbott was crushed. This frank acceptance by Millie of the alleged fact that he was a mere moron was most humiliating. And swiftly he realized what a real menace to earth was this contemplated invasion from the deeps. All that was worst in the world above would taint these intellectual giants of the undersea They would rise to supremacy, and then would become rapacious tyrants over those whom they would regard as being no more than animals. He had witnessed jealousies among them down below. Might not these jealousies flame into huge wars when translated to the world above? Giants striving for mastery, using the human cattle as cannon fodder. He painted to the girl a word-picture of the horrible vision which he foresaw. The invasion must be stopped at all costs. He and Millie must pit their puny wits against these supermen but what could they do? As they were pondering this problem, a girl entered their sitting-room, the same who had brought Abbott's breakfast on his first day in the caves. Millie introduced George to the newcomer, whose name was Romeo. Romeo appeared so woebegone that the young American ventured to inquire if she too had been having difficulty with one of her tests. But that was not the trouble. Hers was rather of the heart. About the same age as Millie, Romale had recently passed her twentieth birthday test and hence was eligible to marry. So she and a young man named Haken had requested the fish masters to give them the requisite permission. But their overlords, for some reason, had peremptorily denied the request. Romeo and Haken were desolate. Young Abbott's sympathies were at once aroused. Can't something be done, he started to ask? But Millie silenced him with a warning glance. Of course not, she said. Who are we to question the judgment of our all-knowing masters?' Romeo had really come to Millie just to pour her troubles into a friendly ear, rather than because she hoped to get any useful ideas. So she had a good cry, and finally left, somewhat comforted. George and Millie then took up again the problem of saving the outer earth from the threatened invasion. Millie suggested that they go peaceably with the expedition, and then warn the authorities of America at the first opportunity after their arrival, but Abbott pointed out that this would merely result in their both being shut up in some insane asylum, as no one would believe such a crazy story as theirs. The time for lights to be put out arrived without their thinking of any better idea. Next day Millie spent considerable time with Dolph, and on her return excitedly informed Abbott that he had evolved a most diabolical plot. There were sufficient quantities of explosives in storage to blast a hole through the wall of the caves, letting in the sea and killing everyone in the city. Dolph planned to set this off with a time-fuse upon the departure of the expedition. Thus Thig and the people who were left behind, about two-thirds of the total population of the city, would be destroyed, and the fish would have no one to send after Dolph and his followers to dictate to them on the upper earth. Relieved of the thraldom of the fish, Dolph could make himself emperor of the world and rule over the human cattle, with Millie at his side as empress. An alluring program, from Dolph's point of view. "'I didn't expect such treason even from Dolph,' exclaimed the young American. "'We must tell Thig. "'What good would that do?' remonstrated the girl. "'If you failed to convince Thig, Dolph would make an end of us both. "'And if you convinced Thig, it would mean the end of Dolph, "'whose influence is all that keeps me alive. "'We must think of something else.' "'Right as always,' replied Abbott. "'A growl came from the doorway. "'It was Dolph, his bearded face black with wrath.' "'So,' he sputtered. "'Treachery, eh?' He whistled twice, and two guards appeared. "'Take them to the prison,' he raged, indicating Abbott and Millie. "'Our expedition will have to do without a guide. I have learned enough of the American language to make a good start, and I guess I can pick up another guide when we reach the surface.' Then, bending close to the frightened girl, he whispered, "'And another empress.' The guards hustled them away and locked them up. As an added precaution, a sentinel was posted in front of each cell door. Abbot immediately got busy. "'Can you get word for me at once to Thig?' he whispered to the man on guard. "'Perhaps,' replied that individual noncommittally. "'Then tell him,' said Abbot, "'that I have proof that Dolph is planning to destroy this city behind him "'and never return from the surface.' The sentry became immediately agitated. "'So you know this?' he exclaimed. "'How did it leak out? But—' "'Through Millie, of course. And the guard on her cell is not a member of the expedition. "'Cursus, I must get word to Dolph, and have that guard changed at once.' And he darted swiftly away. The young prisoner was plunged into gloom. Now he'd gone and done it. Why hadn't he first made appropriate inquiries of his guard? A new guard appeared in front of the door. "'Are you going on the expedition?' asked Abbott. "'Yes, worse luck,' replied the guard." The prisoner forgot his own gloom and his surprise at the gloominess of the other. "'Don't you want to go?' he exclaimed incredulously. "'No. Why not?' "'Do you know Romeo? asked the guard. "'Yes,' Abbott replied. "'Well, that's why.' "'Then you must be Haken,' exclaimed Abbott with sudden understanding. "'Yes,' replied the other dully. "'You are going on the expedition and Romeo is not?' "'Quite correct.' "'Say, look here,' exclaimed Abbott.' and then he launched into the description of a plan which just that moment had occurred to him for him, Millie, Romeil, and Haken to make their getaway ahead of the expedition, in fact that very night, and to set off the time-fuse before leaving. It turned out that Haken knew where the explosives were planted, and where the submarines were kept, and even how to operate them. He eagerly accepted the plan, and when next relieved as sentinel, he hurried away to inform Romeo. Three hours later he was back on post, Quickly he explained to his prisoner all about the workings of the submarines of the expedition. The lights-out bell rang, and all the city became dark except for dim lights in the passageways. Haken at once unlocked the door of Abbott's cell, and together the two young men sneaked down the corridor to the cell where Millie was confined. Silently Haken and Abbott sprang upon the guard and throttled him, then released Millie. There was no time for more than a few hurried words of explanation before the three of them left the prison— and made for the locks of the subterranean canal, picking up Ramail at a pre-appointed spot on the way. The canal locks were unguarded as well as the storerooms of the submarines. Each of the rooms held two subs, and could open onto the second lock and be separately flooded. The submarines were of steel as thick as Abbott's bathysphere. Their shape was that of an elongated raindrop with fins. In the pointed tip of their tails were motors which could operate at any pressure, at the front end were quartz windows in the top fin was an expanding device which could be filled with buoyant gas produced by chemicals when the craft neared the surface each submarine also contained a radio set so tuned as to be capable of opening and closing the radio-controlled gates of the locks each would comfortably carry two or three persons Having picked out two submarines and found them to be in order, Haken sneaked back into the corridor to set off the time-fuse, leaving his three companions in the dark in the storeroom. Abbott put a protecting arm around Millie, while Romeo snuggled close to her other side. Their hearts were all racing madly with excitement, and this was intensified when they heard Haken talking with someone just outside their door. Then Haken returned unexpectedly. "'Something terrible has happened,' he breathed. "'The explosives have been discovered and are gone.' One of the expedition men has just informed me. Someone must have gotten word to Thig. Why, I did, interrupted Millie. I told my guard just before they came and changed him. Abbott groaned. Haken continued hurriedly. So Dolph plans to leave at once. He is already rounding up his followers. Come on, we must get out ahead of him. An uproar could be heard drawing near in the corridor outside. Abbott opened the door and peered out, then shut it again and whispered, the two factions are fighting already. Then come on, exclaimed Hakin. As he spoke he turned on the lights, wedged the door tight against its gaskets, and threw the switch which started the water seeping into the storeroom. Then he led Romeo hurriedly to one of the two submarines, while George and Millie rushed to the other. Heavy blows sounded against the storeroom door. The water rapidly rose about them, and the four friends crawled inside the two machines and clamped the lids tight. Then they waited for sufficient depth so that they could get under way. The water rose above their bow windows, but suddenly and inexplicably it began to subside again. A man waited by around the bow of Abbott's machine. "'They've crashed in the door and are pumping out the water again,' exclaimed Abbott. "'We're trapped.' "'Not yet,' grimly replied the girl at his side. "'Can you work the radio door controls?' "'Yes. Then quick, open the doors into the lock.' He pressed a button." Ahead of them two gates swung inward, followed by a deluge of water. "'Come on,' spoke the girl. "'Full speed ahead, before the water gets too low.' Abbot did so. Out into the lock they sped, in the face of the surging current. Then Abbot pushed another button to close the gates behind them. But the water continued to fall, and they grounded before they reached the end of the lock. Quite evidently the rush of the current had kept the doors from closing behind them. The city was being flooded through the broken door of the storeroom. But Abbott opened the next gate, and again they breasted the incoming torrent. This time, although the level continued to fall, their craft did not quite ground. They must have got the gates shut behind us at last, said he, as he opened the next set and pressed on. And then he had an idea. Why not omit to close any further gates behind him? As a result, the sea pressure would eventually break down the inmost barriers, and destroy the city as effectively as Dolph's bomb would have done. But he said nothing to Millie of this plan. She might wish to save her people. Gate after gate they passed. This was too simple. A few more locks and they would be out in open water. The submarine of Haken and Romeo swept by, evidently to let George and Millie know their presence, and then dropped behind again. But was it their two friends after all? It might have been some enemy. They could not be sure. This uncertainty cast a chill of apprehension over them, which was immediately heightened by the sudden extinguishing of the overhead lights of the tunnel. Abbott pressed the radio button for the next set of locks, but they did not budge. "'What can be the matter?' he asked frantically. "'My people must have turned off the electric current,' Millie replied. "'The gates won't open without electricity to feed the motors. We're trapped again.' For a moment they lay stunned by a realization that their escape was blocked. "'Kiss me good-bye, dear,' breathed Millie. This is the end." As the young man reached over to take her in his arms, the submarine was suddenly lifted up and spun backward, end over end, then tumbled and bumped along, as though it were a chip on an angry mountain torrent. Stunned and bruised and bleeding, the young American finally lost consciousness. When he came to his senses again, his first words were, "'Milly, where are you?' "'My darling,' breathed a voice at his side, "'are you all right?' "'Yes,' he replied. "'Where are we? What has happened?' The entire system of locks must have crashed in and flooded the city," said she. Instantly Abbott's mind grasped the explanation of this occurrence. Their leaving open so many gates behind them had made it impossible for the few remaining gates ahead to withstand the terrific pressures of the ocean depths and they had crumpled. But he did not tell Millie his part in this. She continued, I was pretty badly shaken up myself, but I've got this boat going again, and we're on our way out of the tunnel. "'See, I've found out how to work our searchlight.' He looked. A broad beam of light from their bow illuminated the tunnel ahead of them. Presently another beam appeared, shooting by them from behind. "'Haken and Rommel exclaimed the girl. "'Then they're safe, too!' The tunnel walls grew rough, then disappeared. They were out in the open sea at last, although still one mile beneath the surface. But in front of them was an angry, seething school of the man-sharks, clearly illumined by the two rays of light. Behind the sharks were a score or more of serpentine steeds. The sharks saw the two submarines and charged down upon them, but Millie with great presence of mind shut off her searchlight and swung sharply to the left. Up, up, urged the young man, so she turned the craft upward. On and on they went with no interference. Presently they turned the light on again so as to see what progress they were making. But they were making absolutely none. They were merely standing on their tail, They had reached a height of such relatively low pressure that it took all the churning of their propeller just merely to counteract the great weight of their submarine. Abbott switched on their chemical gas supply, and as their top fin expanded into a balloon, they again began to rise. One thing, however, perplexed the young man. The water about him seemed jet black rather than blue. They must by now be close to the surface of the sea, where at least a twilight blue should be visible. Even at the one-mile depth in his bathysphere, the water had been brilliant, yet here, almost at the surface, he could see absolutely nothing. He switched on the searchlight again to make sure that their window wasn't clouded over. But it wasn't. Then suddenly a rippling veil of pale silver appeared ahead, then a blue-black sky and twinkling stars. They had reached the surface, and it was night. He pointed out the stars to the girl at his side, then swung the nose of the submarine around and showed her the moon. "'Where next?' George Abbott picked out his position by the stars and headed east—east across the Pacific, toward America. But soon he noticed that their little craft was dropping beneath the surface. He kept heading up more and more. He threw the lever for more and more chemical gas, yet still they continued to sink. "'Millie,' he exclaimed, "'we've got to get out of here.' She clutched him in fear, for to her the pressure of the open sea meant death, certain death— but he pushed her firmly away and unclamped the lid of the submarine. In another instant he had hauled her out and was battling his way to the surface, while their little boat sunk slowly beneath them. Millie was an experienced swimmer, for the undersea folk enjoyed the privilege of a large indoor pool. As soon as she found that the open sea did not kill her, she became calm. Side by side they floated in the moonlight. The sky began to pink in the east. Dawn came, the first dawn that Millie had ever seen. Suddenly she called George's attention to two bobbing heads some distance away in the path of light the rising sun made on the ocean. Haken and Romeo, he exclaimed. Long since they had given them up for dead, but evidently fate had treated them in much the same way as themselves. And a moment later his own salt-stung eyes noticed a long gray shape to one side. As the day brightened, Abbott suddenly noticed a large, bulking shape nearby. It was his own boat— the one which had lowered him into the depths in his bathysphere so many weeks and weeks ago. Evidently it was still sticking around, grappling for his long-dead body. "'Come on, dear,' said he, and side by side they swam over to it. He helped her up the ship's ladder. The ship's cook sleepily stuck his head out of the galley door. "'Hello, Mike,' sang out George Abbott merrily to the astonished man. "'I've brought company for breakfast, and there'll be two more when we can lower a boat.'" End of Section 3